beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the early church, there was a man who was called Simeon, the stylist. He was a shepherd boy who at age 16 entered a monastery in order to devote himself to the Lord. He practiced an extreme version of asceticism. He fasted regularly, denying himself food and drink. He took on the practice of standing upright as long as his limbs would sustain him. He was so extreme in limiting himself from any creature comforts, he was asked to leave the monastery. For a few years, he lived in a small hut. Crowds of pilgrims sought him out, asking for his counsel or prayers. In order to get away from an increasing number of visitors, Simeon looked for another place to live. He discovered a pillar that had survived among some ruins in a place in modern-day Syria. He formed a small platform on the top of it and lived there. Boys from a nearby village brought him parcels of flat bread and goat's milk for sustenance. Later he moved his platform to other pillars, with the last one being some 50 feet off the ground. That's where Simeon got his name, the stylist, from. The Greek word style means pillar. He lived on top of this pillar for the last 30 years of his life, without cover, exposed to the heat of summer and the cold of winter. Simeon was not withdrawn from the world. Each afternoon, he made himself available to talk with visitors. At times, he preached to the crowds. He also wrote letters to his disciples. By his devotion to God, he drew others to himself. In the medieval church, various individuals also sought to serve God more earnestly. They made vows of poverty, of celibacy, and good works. We know them as monks and nuns. They devoted themselves to living simple lives. They renounced the possession of material goods. They vowed not to get married or practice sex in any way. They sought to do what's pleasing in God's sight. Some of them lived in monasteries where they spent their lives reading the Bible, praying, and doing good works. The difference between them and Simeon is that for the most part, they withdrew from the world. We don't always view people like Simeon the stylist or monks and nuns in a favorable way. We think you've got to be a bit crazy to deny yourself the simple pleasures of life. In the New Testament, Paul opposed those who preached, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul said that asceticism and severity to the body were of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Yet there was something admirable in the lives of Simeon the stylist, and in the lives of the monks and the nuns of the past. They did what they did in devotion to God. This morning we examined the law of the Nazarite. It's a law which allowed an ordinary Israelite who was not a priest or Levite to make a vow to devote himself to God in a special way for a period of time. To us, living in the 21st century, this law appears strange. 
We struggle to understand what not drinking alcohol, allowing your hair to grow, and not touching a dead body have in common. To us, the requirement to offer all kinds of sacrifices if someone accidentally dies besides you seems severe. We struggle to see any connection between this law and our lives today. This morning, we're going to use the law of the Nazarite to consider how we are to live our lives in devotion to God. I preach to you God's word under the following theme, the law of the Nazarite. We'll consider the purpose of this law in Israel, the fulfillment of this law in Christ, and the call of this law for us today. Our text details how it was possible for a man or a woman from among God's people to make a special vow to the Lord. A vow is a solemn promise that someone makes to God. Vows were used more commonly in Israel. Jacob vowed that if God would be with him when he left his family and provided for him, that when he returned to his father's house, he would offer a tenth of all he had to the Lord. The legislation about vows makes it clear that at times when God's people were in trouble, they might vow to bring God a special sacrifice if he delivered them. No one was obligated to make any vow. Vows were a voluntary commitment that a person made to God. Yet if you made a vow, you were expected to keep it. The vow spoken about in our text was a special vow. It's called the vow of a Nazarite. It could be made by any man or woman in Israel. Such a person made a commitment to consecrate him or herself to the Lord in a special way for a set period of time. We know that in Israel, the priests and the Levites were set apart. They were devoted to God's service at the tabernacle. The Nazarite vow allowed a common Israelite, not of the tribe of Levi, to devote his or her life to God. Our text outlines the heart of what a Nazarite vow involved by its focus on the word separation. Verse 2 says that to make the vow of a Nazarite was for a person to separate himself for the Lord. Verse 3 says he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Verse 5 says that all the days of his separation, no razor shall touch his head. Repeatedly, our, word, our text uses the word separation or to separate. A person making the vow of a Nazarite was setting himself apart from the rest of the community. For a period of time, he or she was consecrating him or herself to the Lord in a special way. Striking to see what someone who made the vow of a Nazarite committed to doing. He or she made a temporary personal commitment to avoid three things. Such a person made a commitment to abstain from wine or strong drink. Not only were they to abstain from alcohol, they had to avoid anything that came from the grapevine, including grapes, raisins, or even the seeds or skins. And Nazarite also made a commitment that no razor should touch his head. He or she was required to let the hair of their head grow. No haircuts 
or even trims were allowed. Finally, such a person committed not to go near a dead body. In Numbers 5, we saw that all Israelites were to refrain from touching the dead. Yet when a loved one died, it was normal for that person's close family to prepare the body for burial. Nazarites, however, made a commitment to stay away from the dead bodies of even their closest family members. It was a vivid symbol of their extreme separation from the realm of the dead to serve the living God. Our text contains regulations about what was required of a Nazarite who inadvertently broke his vow. Imagine being a Nazarite and having someone die unexpectedly in your arms. In such a situation, even though it was not intentional, a Nazarite was deemed to have sinned against the Lord. He was required to cleanse himself and to shave the hair from his head. Then he had to present himself before the Lord and offer a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a guilt offering. After that, the period of the vow was restarted. If he had promised to devote seven years of his life to God and broken his vows in the fifth year, his time started from scratch again. There is some overlap between the regulations for the priests and the manner in which a Nazarite devoted him or herself to God. The priests were also to abstain from alcohol, but only while they were on duty. Wine is a good gift from God intended to bring joy and gladness. But a priest was not allowed to be under the influence of alcohol in any way when he went into the tent of meeting. Priests were forbidden to shave their heads, to make themselves bald. They were not allowed to shave off the edges of their beards. The high priest was not allowed contact with the dead, not even to mourn his own father or mother. This overlap between the regulations for the priests and a Nazarite's vow shows us something about the nature of a Nazarite vow. Such a person was committing to devote his life to God in a special way for a period of time, just like the priests were to be devoted to God. A Nazarite committed to live his life according to a special level of ritual purity. He was committing to live a priest-like life, even though he's not allowed to serve at the tabernacle. What we need to understand, beloved, is that someone who committed to live as a Nazarite served as a symbol of what all Israel was intended to be. When the Lord first gathered his people at Mount Sinai, he told them that he had chosen them from among all the nations of the earth. Then the Lord said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Lord pledged to live among his people, and so he called them to be separate distinct from all other nations. While all of God's people were called to be priests, only some officially served in this role. A Nazarite was a visible reminder of God's calling for all his people to live consecrated lives before him. The prophet Samuel was a good example of this. He was dedicated by his mother at birth to be a lifelong Nazarite. 
The priests of his day were Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. They had brought the priesthood into disrepute with their sinful lives. They were guilty of running the tabernacle for their own personal profit and of sleeping with the women who served there. Samuel's devotion to the Lord served as a stark contrast to the corruption of Eli's sons. It was a reminder and a call to God's people about how they were to live holy lives before the Lord. In Israel, living the consecrated life of a Nazarite would have been obvious to all. Every time they saw a Nazarite refuse to join them in enjoying a cup of wine or some grapes or a cake of raisins, they were reminded of his sacrificial devotion to God, forsaking some of the common pleasures of life. When they saw a Nazarite with long, untrimmed hair, they were reminded of a person who gave his life to God, including even the control of the growth of his hair. Whenever they saw a Nazarite refusing to go near the dead body of a loved one, they were reminded of his commitment to keep God's covenant holy, even at personal cost. Here we see the purpose of the Nazarite law. The Nazarites were both a challenge and an encouragement to the whole nation of Israel. John Calvin speaks about them being an adornment of the nation. They were like a jewel in Israel. They were a blessing to the nation, for they served as a living example of a life set apart and dedicated to God. You know why that was necessary, beloved? It's because so often God's people didn't live devoted lives to the Lord. The Nazarites were called to be holy because Israel wasn't holy. They were called for a while to live a priestly life because God's people were not fully devoted to the Lord. Israel's failure to live as a people set apart and dedicated to the Lord is exemplified in the life of Samson. Before he was born, an angel of the Lord came to Samson's mom, telling her she would conceive and bear a son, and that he was to be a lifelong Nazarite. While expecting, she was not allowed to drink from the fruit of the vine, and no razor was ever to touch Samson's head. The Lord said that through Samson, he'd begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. Yet despite his calling as a Nazarite, Samson did not live a life devoted to the Lord. Although it was against the law of the Lord, he set his heart on getting married to a beautiful Philistine woman. On the way to marry Delilah, he took honey from bees nesting in the corpse of a lion. When he arrived at the wedding feast, he partied and drank wine with the woman's family. He was enticed by Delilah to give away the secret of his strength, and in doing so, he had his hair cut. He broke every one of the regulations that applied to a Nazarite. The Lord used this judge as a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness, of how every man did what was right in his own eyes. We've seen that the Lord used the Nazarite as a mirror among his people. 
A Nazarite reflected how every Israelite's life was supposed to be consecrated to God. God's people didn't always appreciate being reminded of how they fell short of the holiness God demanded of them. When Amos pronounces judgment on God's people, he points out how the Lord had raised up some of their sons as prophets and some of their young men as Nazarites. But God's people rejected them. They made the Nazarites drink wine. And they commanded the prophets to prophesy no more. When we reflect on our devotion to the Lord, we see how often we are lacking in personal holiness. It also shows our need for a Savior to redeem and sanctify us. Brings us to our second point, and it will consider the fulfillment of the Nazarite law in Christ. The last part of our text shows the flawed nature of every Old Testament Nazarite. In Numbers 6, 13 to 21, we read of what was required of a Nazarite when his time of separation was complete. Such a person couldn't just walk away from his life of complete devotion to God and return to an ordinary life. He had to offer a whole list of sacrifices which symbolized all of Israel's covenant obligations. He had to offer a whole burnt offering, which symbolized consecration to God and atonement for sin. He had to offer a grain offering, which symbolized submission to the Lord. He had to offer a sin offering, which was required for particular sins. He also had to offer unleavened bread and the associated drink offerings. And finally, the Nazarite would offer a peace offering, often called a fellowship offering. Part of this offering was burnt up on the altar together with the Nazarite's hair, which had been shaved from his head, symbolizing his life offered to God. The rest of the fellowship offering was eaten by the Nazarite and his family. The end of his vow was thus, a celebration of joy, of life in God's presence. After this, the Nazarite was allowed to return to living a normal life again. Note, beloved, that even though a Nazarite had devoted his life completely to God, he still had to present all the sacrifices demanded by the law before sharing a fellowship meal with the Lord. Despite living an exemplary life, Nazarite remained a sinful man or woman. Despite consecrating his or whole life to God for a period of many months or even years, he or, should, he or she could not come into God's presence and enjoy fellowship with him on the basis of their own devotion. The laws by which a Nazarite was released from his vows show not even the holiest among all God's people could atone for their own sins. According to the regulations of the law, the Lord Jesus was not a Nazarite. Jesus drank wine. At times he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There were times during his public ministry when Jesus touched dead bodies 
in order to raise them to life again. Jesus did not conform his life according to the law of the Nazarite. Yet the law of the Nazarite foreshadowed the need for someone who would consecrate his whole life to God. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Nazarite vow of separating his life from sin and of devoting it to the Lord. He lived his whole life in complete obedience to all God's commandments. He was 100% devoted to doing the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus was born righteous and holy. Despite many temptations to sin, he lived his life in perfect righteousness and holiness before God. By dedicating his entire life to God's service, he is the fulfillment of the Nazarite law. During his earthly ministry, there were times when Jesus enjoyed the pleasures of wine. Yet Jesus was also willing to drink from the cup of God's wrath, to suffer and die for us, that we might be made acceptable to God. Though Jesus at times cut his hair, he trusted God completely, saying, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The fact that Jesus was willing to touch the dead showed his, unwilling, showed his willingness to take our uncleanness upon himself. He touched the dead to raise them up to new life, showing the power he has to regenerate and to sanctify us. Jesus did not take Nazarite vows, yet he fulfilled what they foreshadowed, a separation from sin and a consecration to God. Today, the Lord does not require us to take on the vows of a Nazarite. Instead, he calls us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who lived his whole life in devotion to God. While a Nazarite was called to cut off his hair and offer it as part of a fellowship offering, Christ did far more than that. He offered his body and blood as a sacrifice to God to redeem us from the power of sin and Satan. Christ poured out his spirit upon us so that we would be separated, sanctified, and transformed. So that out of thankfulness for Christ's redeeming and renewing work, we might now devote our hearts and lives to God's service. We'll deal with this in our final point. The call of the Nazarite law for us today. We've seen that the Nazarite had to live his life according to three specific rules. The first was that he was to abstain from the fruit of the vine. This represents living a sacrificial life. Christ fulfilled this by leaving behind the glory of heaven to live a life of suffering on earth. He was willing to do all this so that you may enjoy all his spiritual blessings. So what does that mean for us today? Earlier we read a few verses from 1 John 2. The apostle commands us not to love the world or the things of this world. That's a really difficult command for us to obey. Our hearts are attracted to many things of this world. But John tells us 
that if we love this world, the love of the Father is not in us. The point is not that we may not enjoy the good gifts that God gives us. But where is your allegiance? On what is your heart focused? John tells us that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father but from the world. We often have our priorities wrong. Yet the law of the Nazarite calls us to radically devote our life to God. Do you understand why? Because as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. John gives us, John gives us another reason for putting God above all fleshly desires. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are the joys and pleasures of life that we cling to? Would you be willing to forgo some of the pleasures of earth in the service of your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ? What is there that you think you must have in order to be happy here? Is there a bad habit that you are unwilling to break? Is there some dream that you want to see fulfilled? Are there things in your life that give priority over the service of Christ? Remember, the law of the Nazarite shows how we're called to be part of a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, wholly devoted to the Lord. Secondly, a Nazarite was not allowed to cut his or her hair. This represents surrendering control of your life to God. We know that ultimately we're not in control of our own lives. But we often live as though we were. When unexpected things happen in your life, do you trust in God to care for you? Instead of getting frustrated or impatient, are you willing to acknowledge that God uses temptations and suffering to shape your character? That he works all things for your good? Are you willing to pray, not my will, but yours be done? Do you hold fast God's promise that not a hair can fall from my head without his will? Third, an Nazarite was required to separate himself from death. It represents separating ourselves from sin and all its deadly effects. In Romans 12, 2, Paul urges us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In 2 Peter 3, 14, Peter calls us to live every day in expectation of Christ's return. He says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, beloved, the call to live a life separated 
from the lifestyles of all the unbelievers around us. Beloved, you have been redeemed from your sins by the blood of Christ. You've been set free from the mastery of the evil one. Christ has sanctified you. He has made you a new creation. Are you truly thankful for his mercy and grace in your life? Does that show in your life? Does your behavior conform to who you are in Christ? Are your heart and life devoted to God? And do you seek to please Him by living in obedience to His commands? These are good things for us to consider as we prepare for the Lord's Supper in the coming weeks. Please remember that when a Nazarite completed his vow of separation, he was allowed to share in a fellowship meal with God. His fellowship with the Lord was not based on his faithful completion of his vows. He had to offer burnt and guilt and sin offerings, which showed that of himself he was not worthy of fellowship with God. We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper our communion with Christ on the basis of our works either. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of Christ's finished work at Calvary. We celebrate it in anticipation of sharing in the marriage feast of the Lamb, which Christ has promised to all who truly love him. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from Psalm 116, stanzas 8, 9, and 10.